Welcome to the Metabolic Mind Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Metabolic Mind is a nonprofit initiative of Bazooki Group, where we're providing information about the intersection of metabolic health and mental health, and metabolic therapies such as nutritional ketosis as therapies for mental illness. Thank you for joining us. Although our podcast is for informational purposes only and we aren't giving medical advice, we hope you will learn from our content and it will help facilitate discussions with your healthcare providers to see if you could benefit from exploring the connection between metabolic and mental health. Will the findings of a new study make us rethink everything we know about LDL cholesterol? Today, we're going to hear from Dave Feldman, an engineer and citizen scientist who has helped put together a research study with some pretty dramatic findings. Now, you can find Dave at The Real Dave Feldman on X or Twitter. And also, he's the founder of cholesterolcode.com and citizensciencefoundation.org. Now, before we get into the interview, we do talk about some technical stuff. So, here's some definitions. First, lean mass hyperresponder. Individuals who are lean, metabolically healthy, and have dramatically elevated LDL cholesterol above 220, but also with HDL above 80 and triglycerides below 70. Okay, so that's this population that we're talking about. We also talk about familial hypercholesterolemia, which is an inborn genetic uh, mutation that leads to very high LDL. Now, lean mass hyperresponders are not the same as people with familial hypercholesterolemia, but that's the comparator population for having LDL that high. Homozygous means the most severely affected. Heterozygous are less affected, but still affected with a mutation. So that's the easy <laughs> explanation for that. We also talk about two imaging modalities. So coronary calcium scores, which is a CT scan, like a cross-sectional x-ray. And it's a pretty simple test, takes about 10 seconds to do, and it looks for calcium in the walls of your coronary artery, which is a marker of plaque and disease. But we also talk about CTA, or coronary CT angiogram or angiography. And what they do is they actually inject IV dye or contrast into your veins, and then do the same, uh, same similar cross-sectional uh, CT scan, and you can actually see inside the arteries themselves. So it's much more advanced. Um, imaging modality where you can actually measure and see plaque much earlier. And that's how you determine what's called a plaque score, which is a grade of how much plaque you have. So that's what they did in this, um, in this study. That's it for the definitions. But before we get to the interview, please remember this channel is for informational purposes only. We're not providing individual or group medical or healthcare advice or establishing a provider-patient relationship. Some of the things we discuss can be very dangerous if done without proper supervision. And especially when it comes to LDL or any of your lab values, you should not interpret those on your own. And you should definitely discuss everything with your healthcare team before making any decisions about what the labs may mean for you, right? Because we're talking about one study in a very specific group, whether that applies to you or not is something that you have to decide with your healthcare team. All right. So with that as the introduction, let's get into this interview with Dave Feldman. So Dave, welcome back to Metabolic Mind. Uh, you've been in the news a lot lately. What's going on? Obviously, the big news that's dropping right now is the match analysis that comes from our keto study. That's the internal name and the one that Budaf wants to go with, but that I've uh, regularly referred to as the lean mass hyperresponder study. It, as you know, you've been there from the start. It's been a very, very long journey to get to the point where we finally were coming to data that uh, would, in fact, have a publication ahead. And we're here. Now we actually do have a match analysis 
it's not just with our cohort, but uh, a little late into the game, we found out that we could do a, a comparison between this and what's known as the Miami Heart Study, uh, Principal Investigators Karam Nasir. And from the moment I knew that this was even possible, I said, hey, let's see if we can do that with our baseline data from our existing study. Yeah, so let's rewind for a second. So, I mean, first and foremost, we've talked about your study on this channel before, and and hopefully people understand it. But it it in itself is is kind of a groundbreaking study studying this specific group of people who fit the lean mass hyperresponder criteria and have markedly elevated LDL cholesterol to the level that are otherwise seen in genetic abnormalities that make cardiologists very nervous. But these individuals have no um, genetic mutations to cause it, so it's presumed due to the diet alone. So you're doing the study on these individuals. You've collected their baseline data, including a coronary CT angiogram. But now what you're saying is you're comparing it to a completely different group of people who are not on a ketogenic diet, who are not lean mass hyperresponders, who do not have markedly elevated LDL cholesterols, who also have a coronary CT angiogram, so you can directly compare them. Did I kind of sum that up right? Yeah, actually, that's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what what's unique about this then? Or, or you tell me, what, what's unique about this in, in the field of cardiology and lipidology? Well, of course, going all the way back to our initial conversations, the reason I've always felt lean mass hyperresponders should get studied is not just because, obviously, it's in this low-carb context, but as I like to point out frequently, we all of, all of our data that associates LDL levels with corresponding cardiovascular disease are typically in populations that have some form of dysfunction in lipid metabolism or some kind of illness something along those lines, we, we rarely have an opportunity, especially in the area of metabolism itself, to get a variable of interest such as LDL, and in particular, it's ApoB-containing lipoprotein, uh, in, in a very high level all by itself in otherwise metabolically healthy individuals. And that's exactly what we were aiming for. The eligibility criteria wasn't just this, this triad associated with lean mass hyperresponders, uh, for anybody who's just initiated, we're talking very high levels of LDL, but alongside high HDL cholesterol and low triglycerides, but also other risk factors we uh, wanted to be sure weren't a part of the study. For example, uh, prior diagnosis of atheros of cardiovascular disease, um, hypertension, all of these different things. But here's the thing, Brett. Once you get that, that's fine, but there aren't a lot of studies done on metabolically healthy people anyway, whether or not they right. had high LDL or not, especially with the kind of outcome we're interested in, which are these advanced scans known as uh, coronary CT angiography. And our study is capturing it at baseline at zero, and then it's doing a second scan with all participants for one year later. And that was the original design, uh, is the current design, if you will, of the uh, study. This match analysis was something that we found out was possible because this other data set was completing at around the time that we were starting our study. So that provided an opportunity because we didn't have a comparator before. Yeah. Now we do have this comparator of other metabolically healthy folks, but who, of course, have more average LDL levels. Right. Right, so it's a great point. You have all this, yeah, you have all this amazing data on this group of individuals, but then you say, well, how does this compare to anybody else? We don't know how to compare it. All of a sudden, along comes the Miami 
what was it called? Sorry, the Miami Heart Study? Or Correct. It's the Miami Heart Study. And yeah, the Miami it, Heart Study. Yeah. So now all of a sudden you have a direct comparison by age, by metabolic health. The only thing that's different, presumably, is the LDL. And so what did you find? What's the let's not bury the lead here? Yes. Yeah, so uh of course it's worth emphasizing at this point when I'm saying we, it's really the Lundquist Institute, because uh, all the data is internal. It's their statistician. And she was able to get a near one-to-one match between 80 people in our 100-person cohort and those with Miami Heart. So before I go a little bit further, it's worth emphasizing this, this part of it. Miami Heart's age range was we had about 80 people that fit within their age range. And so once we had that 80 isolated, then she found the match. And the match was impressive. Uh, uh, they were matched for age, which was around 55 years of age and the, um, uh, ethnicity was matched. Um, the, um, the risk factors, all of them were extremely close. The one thing that she couldn't match for was, uh, BMI, which is not surprising. Our cohort had around a 22.5 BMI. You're not surprised to hear that because of course it it follows the lip energy model. The Miami heart group was around 25.8, but they were all very healthy. Once again, uh, not only the Miami Heart Group also had high HDL, low triglycerides, for example. So yes, sorry, I had to add that little extra in, but no, sure enough, good. their plaque had no statistically no statistical significance at a population level between both groups. And that was, I think, a very fascinating finding when you when you know that our um, the the average amount of time our cohort had been at these levels at this triad were 4.7 years. So average time, our eligibility was you needed to be at these, you needed to be a lean mass hypersponder, this borderline lean mass hypersponder, that's our eligibility for at least uh, two years. But we had 4.7 years in this cohort of 80 that were compared for the subset. And their LDL was around 272 average. Miami Hearts was around 123. So it's a substantial difference in yeah. in the LDL overall. Yeah, so I mean just some remarkable findings right off the bat. The degree of LDL differentiation is huge. And the fact that you're using coronary CT angiogram, not calcium scores of some people have mentioned, not just calcium scores which can be a later manifestation of disease, but the amount of plaque seen by the more advanced and more detailed coronary CT angiogram, so you're using that technique, and the degree of time that these that they had the elevation because that's the other knock that, well, if you're just looking at one year or two years, well, you're looking at five years, which still is not a 20 year, 30 year study granted, but getting close to five years by CT angiogram, um, Dr. Matt Budoff, who is one of, you know, is a preeminent cardiovascular CT, uh, imaging researcher. I mean, does he feel that's pretty significant amount of time where you would see some, uh, a rapid progression of disease with that degree of LDL? Yeah, I mean, of course, I, I don't want to speak for him and that we'd want him to be here, but his presentation is online and, and is on my channel. Uh, it's He's a good scientist, and they all are, and that they go, oh, here's this more recent step, and here's another step that that takes us even a bit further. It's always like a journey. It's always like a what's the next thing to come. But would would he and many others consider it to be uh, fairly significant? an important finding, I, th- I think that they would say yes. 
with the usual caveats that we still have more to go. Yeah. And this is where I kind of have to reemphasize the importance of us just getting to this first step was already a huge amount of work just to get to this first step. Now, I want to add one other piece to this finding, the one other very important piece, which is that we also were looking at LDL versus the plaque itself. Because after all, you not only had the total plaque, which you could think of as sorted, right? You could then add on top of that what the corresponding LDL levels were for everybody. So if you were to put that in a scatter plot, would you find that there was a correlation between everybody's LDL and their total plaque score? And indeed, there was not. There was not a correlation between standing LDL levels and total plaque score with both populations, with both the mm -hmm. with both the lean mass hyperresponders and with those from Miami Heart. And that was pretty fascinating. And one last thing, this part's kind of important, but I want to add a caveat to it when I do. If you do look at the area under the curve of the total plaque for both groups, bearing in mind that the that both groups had uh, half or more with no plaque. It's a very healthy group for, for a bunch of 55-year-olds because at middle age, as you know, you start developing plaque. But if you look at area under the curve and compare them, our group actually had a lower area under the curve. So while there's not a statistically significant difference, ours was technically trending towards lower overall plaque. Now, I bring that up not to say our group was clearly doing better because I want to bring up the statistical significance. What I will say, though, is that you would expect at least that the trend would be the opposite direction. So if the lipid hypothesis was, was at least present in some fashion per a lot of people's expectations such that, okay, maybe there's not a statistical, statistically significant difference, but probably it's at least starting to head that way. That's what you would expect to see is that it'd be flipped and we see the reverse instead. And again, I want a caveat that that doesn't mean it's going to continue to diverge or anything along those lines, just that there doesn't so far seem to be anything hinting in that direction. Yeah. And one of the things I really appreciate about your message and Dr. Budoff's message is the caveats, is the nuances. And in the video that you shared of, of Dr. Budoff's presentation, there was a question that says, so does this refute the LDL hypothesis? And he said, no, this study does not refute the LDL hypothesis. And, and I think he's right. A study like this, that's not the intent of the study, right? The, uh, you wouldn't expect it to, but does it raise the question in a way that has never been raised before? Yeah, and that's what science is supposed to do. Um, so that's part of what I really appreciate about the message. Now, the flip side, though, is even with these caveats, even with your measured approach of how this is presented, um, seems like this has got a lot of people upset. And I'm curious what you've seen as some of the, I don't know, the, the pushback or the negative reactions or the discounting, like, one, what have you seen? And two, has it surprised you to see it? Frankly, it hasn't surprised me that much. There's, <laughs> we, we knew there'd be a lot of pushback. I, I mean, even before the very first scan, you, you think, hey, if, if, this, if these data actually turn out to be as we'd hoped that they would, of course, these will be, because you know in the study design, this will be the first thing people will say. For example, hey, wait a sec, there's... Uh, there's selection bias per se, and that this is a healthy cohort, right? 
And by the way, this isn't me dismissing it. All of these concerns are worth discussing and bringing forward. But that was also kind of by, in, by design. We specifically wanted a healthy population in part to uh, meet with IRB approval. You can't, for example, you can't have people with an existing heart condition of any kind and say, we want to study what happens if they're not treated, right? So of course, we would want to bring that forward. However, there is something of relevance to, to bring up with regard to the lipid hypothesis as it stands today, which is whether or not it's context independent. The expectation right now is that it is. So to expand on uh, Budoff's point, a lot of people, both pro and uh, anti-LDL, if you will, will always treat it as that false dichotomy, that either it's absolutely true or it's absolutely not. As you know, as I've said to you many times before, and as I say here on the show, we can think of it in a nuanced fashion. It may be that the lipid hypothesis applies, but maybe there really is a subset of a context, or maybe it's the other way around. There is more of a subset of the context of where there's a lack of metabolic health. So that said, I want to bring that forward. But by the same token, I also want to emphasize for those people who do think, because we're selecting for healthy uh, folks, that that might be a confounder. Why wouldn't that be exactly the population you'd be aiming for? Since again, the variable of interest is now separated from those other confounders. If you feel the confounder is itself something these folks are doing, such as being on a ketogenic diet, the case you're wanting to make is that being metabolically healthy, being on a ketogenic diet is so cardioprotective that the LDL is just going to have next to no relevance or no relevance. That's still an important finding even if you don't think it comes back to the lipid hypothesis itself. Right, right. So again, not what the study has shown or proven, but a question that is being raised that is exactly what, what should be raised. I mean, you, you pick, like you said, you pick this population for a specific reason. Now, that doesn't mean your findings are going to apply to everybody, and it's not meant to be. Right? So to, to make the argument that, well, this doesn't apply to other populations, well, of course not. That's not how studies work. But again, it raises the question, and it's a stepwise process. So this is step one. Step one was you have your baseline data, you compare it to a matched control group and show that there is no difference in, in cardiovascular disease despite the dramatic difference in LDL. Step two, though, is then for you to complete the one-year study your prospective study that you're doing with a follow-up CT angiogram. So um, how does that change the discussion then in terms of the results? Um, how do you see that being different from comparing the baseline data? As in how would this match data compare to our final analysis where the longitudinal data are in? Well, I, I guess I'm saying since you're taking a stepwise approach for saying, saying what have we learned? So what more do you learn then by doing the one-year CT angio? Because I'm trying to see, like, at each step, right? What what lessons can we take from each step? Do you think? Uh, oh well, first of all, per the original design of the study, we want to see if there's plaque progression, period. Okay. Which we'll see with the longitudinal having the first scan, then to be compared to the second scan. Uh, to be fair, and this is me just managing expectations. Now that we know that our population 
is middle age, particularly if they're into their 50s. I just want to say to everybody, my baseline expectation is that they will, at a population level, have plaque progression because every middle-aged population in that range, especially majority male, statistically will have that. Like, if Go ahead and tell me what population is immune from, from development of atherosclerosis. I'll be very interested in the data that you have that can prove that. Even, even folks with PCSK9 loss of function have development of atherosclerosis, even if it's much less relatively speaking, right? So the reason I bring that up is because, yes, it would be a huge finding if it turned out that there was not a population level increase of plaque, but I do not want to set anyone's expectations at that level. When we were first putting this together, as you know, when I was announcing the study, I wasn't even bringing up people in poor metabolic health. I was bringing up the work of Brown and Goldstein because it's technically the closest corollary to what is um, folks who are assumed to be uh, metabolically healthy, but who still have high LDL and that the high LDL is what's driving the disease. So, so you're referring to the familial hypercholesterolemia. Correct, correct. So if you have a genetic abnormality, such as uh, the kinds Brown and Goldstein were looking at half a century ago, uh, those who had uh, homozygous FH, as you know, and I'm sure you've met many, if not have many as patients, there are some who have very super, super high levels of LDL now who are not those same uh, folks that Brown and Goldstein were looking at with homozygous FH on a ketogenic diet. We've interviewed some for our documentary. And understandably, doctors and scientists are, are really worried if they're going to exhibit the same uh, advanced cardiovascular disease, because that's what they were seeing then, right? Right. And this is why I brought it up in the course of our study. I knew our averages would be much higher, and if there wasn't, if there was not these other uh, confounders, then the obvious comparator would be looking at folks who have FH and what their development of plaque is, given the threshold levels, because per the lipid hypothesis. That's more than enough. You don't need to be a smoker. You don't need to be a, a type A personality. If you if you, the levels are high enough, that will do it. So yes, are patients having levels in the 260, 270, et cetera, we should see a signal given just mm -hmm. how high it is. It's it's worth reemphasizing something else too. This is not linear. If you look at like the EAS 2017 consensus paper, they'll say it's log linear. So it's much more of a curve. Mm. 100 LDL, or sorry, a 200 LDL is not twice as bad as 100 LDL. It's several fold higher. That's why they yeah. say things like, look at every stepwise increase of, say, 38 uh, whatever LDL per. Well, ours are now standard deviations in because this is an extremely rare level of LDL. Um, so, sorry, I realized that was a lot to say. The bottom line is I felt confident and I still do, that if the lipid hypothesis is truly context-independent, we would see a, a pronounced increase of plaque progression in our population between the two scans Be because that's exactly how it's presented to us in the context-independent version of the lipid hypothesis. I'm excited to see that come out in one way or the other, right? Because like you've said, we need to know the answer to this question. One way or the other, we need to know. But certainly... Now with this baseline data, it, it seems 
pointing in a direction that it, it should not be concerning, but that's why we do the research, right? That's why you play the game. You got to find out the results. So, so I appreciate that. Um, now, one other thing though, about the, the numbers and the variation. So with heterozygous FH, it's generally thought, you know, LDLs are between 190 and I don't know, 250, 300 on average, right? They could be different. And then homozygous FH is where you get to the 500 range or above even. Now, with your data, were you able to look specifically at those who were at the 500 range or significantly higher and see if they were outliers in terms of their plaque score? Yeah, actually, it's funny you bring that up. The max level of LDL, I believe, was um, 590. Yeah, the uh, match mean average is 55, LDL 272. Max was an LDL cholesterol of 591. You can see on the graph the person who's at the 590 and then just follow it straight down to the total plaque score. You could see that they don't they don't have a total plaque score at all. <laughs> like they're it's just not there. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to have the knee jerk instinct that is appropriate all the time. Whenever I'm saying exciting data, particularly as my profile grows and the profile of this research grows, uh, that doesn't mean it applies to you. It could be that you have an LDL of 590, et cetera, and there are more considerations at play. As always, I'm going to reemphasize work with your doctor, recognize your context can be individual. And if, if you don't mind, Brett, I'll go ahead and bring this up. A lot of doctors like yourself who are pro-low carb and who probably might even be considered more liberal with regard to what they would allow for higher levels of LDL you yourself still prescribe uh, statins, right, for cases Absolutely. that you find concerning. And, Absolutely. And I think that that's even after we've crossed this dotted line, even after we have this data in hand and so forth, um, I, I want to feel confident that everybody who is backing this research up, that we continue to do our best to try to gather this research and inform all those patients, all those doctors with more information, but recognizing that patient care is still an individual relationship and needs to always be considered that way. I, I hope nobody um, would take any single study under any situation and say, this is all you need to know. And then from that, I can make a fairly binary decision. Yeah. I mean, one of the most exciting things I think of when I think of this study is how it brings up the use of CTA and calcium scores, but also CTA. Because, I mean, look, if you, I shouldn't say you, if somebody has high LDL and they want to know, is this a problem or not? The, the guidelines now say just start a statin. But it's, it's data like yours, research studies like this, that would say, huh, well, maybe we could get a CTA. And maybe we can look at your plaque scores. Now, I was doing CTAs 20 years ago when it was a lot more uh, radiation, you know, 15 times more radiation, 10 times more radiation than it is now. So the radiation dose has come down. So these are much more available. That doesn't mean everybody should get a CTA, but it means you can talk to your doctor about it and see if it's right for you. And maybe that's a tool that we will start to think of more to say, okay, let's define better 
if this LDL is an issue for you or some way to follow you. It just brings up more options that didn't exist when it was sort of case closed, all elevated LDL needs to be treated, period, no questions asked. So I think that's one of the most exciting parts of this study, regardless of the findings, is it, is it says like, look, we can do things differently and we could do things better and not just for research, but maybe for clinical practice. So that was me on my soapbox. And my, my guess is you would probably agree with that. Yeah, I listen, a CT angiogram, as you just mentioned, the radiation dosage, I've had two of them myself, it's two millisievers was what it took for me. It's, it's relatively, and yes, there's a little bit of a risk in contrast dye. It's, I want to say it's maybe one in 10,000, I think, for something related to the kidneys. Um, so it might be worth looking at, but like the radiation dosage itself, free living, just year round living in the, on the earth is three, three and a half millisievers, I believe. And you can compare it to a mammogram. Mammogram is, I want to say, 0.5 millisievers. So it's like basically four mammograms worth of radiation. I myself, I've had family members get it because of the dosage being so low and because, frankly, it's just peace of mind. If there's, if there's any concern of having uh, heart disease, first of all, consider CAC at least because a coronary artery calcification scan uh, doesn't even require the contrast dye. It's about a mammogram and a half at most. Um, and it tends to be highly correlated with the amount of soft plaque given, especially recent research that's come out in the last couple of years. But that said, CT angiogram, gold standard. If you get a CT angiogram, I mean, I've said this many times before, but nothing beats the actual detection of the disease. Mm -hmm. And even in Budoff's presentation, he said at the end, uh, somebody had pointedly asked him, so is this in the lipid hypothesis? He's, no, it doesn't end the lipid hypothesis. Um, but another, another um, uh, questioner had said, should we just ignore it if somebody's levels are high? And he said, no, but be aware that there is there are a lot of existing data now that show if somebody has a CAC of zero, they're high LDL, even in people who have FH, confirmed FH out of the study, I think out of Denmark, uh, it, it didn't matter. It, it didn't seem to matter as to whether as to what their risk stratification was. So yeah, nothing, I'm sorry, Brett, nothing to me beats actually seeing the disease itself to make your next informed decision. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that sums it up very well. And um, when you go against what's called common knowledge or common practice, it you 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 are held to a higher standard, I think, and you're held to a higher level of attacks as well. Um, so let me just ask you: Do you think that's unfair? It's a tough question to answer. Yeah. I think I think in any circumstance where you're challenging a real structural paradigm, you should expect it. I think there is a human nature component. And this is also something else that I say frequently, and I'll just say it again. I really do believe that the vast majority of my of critics of me and of my work are, are honestly well-meaning. They, they feel that there's too many people taking comfort and maybe making decisions that could ultimately lead to harm. Uh, that that lipids are indeed dangerous, whatever the context, or that, for that matter, maybe we are discovering context in which it's okay, but people are taking it too far and it's impacting their whatever. All of these, I can I get it. I get why if you're a clinician and you're working with people, 
I understand better now, Brett, than when I started coming as an, coming at it from an engineer, how much doctors really have enormous um, attachment to the care of their patients and, and feel a great deal of buy-in and responsibility for that. And um, so to that end, I always try to keep that in mind when there's, when there's criticisms lev- you know, levied in my direction. That said, again, another big part of this is the paradigm itself. Whenever there's something a lot of people agree is true, that some, you know, some traction seems to be setting foot that it could be false. There, there's a challenge. That's just how it's always been, you know, th- throughout medicine. Yeah, and I, I want to focus in on one thing you said there, though, that that some people are going to run with this and make their own conclusions, even if it has nothing to do with what you're saying or what you think the conclusions are. Like we just did a, a video on the Stanford twin study. You know, it was a very small very short study comparing two very specific diets. And from that, people are concluding that vegan diets are the best diets or we all need to eat more plants, which are, you cannot conclude from the study. I mean, that study had nothing to do with conclusions that broad. So similarly, people may run from, take this study and say, see, LDL does not matter at all. Or see, I can have high LDL and it does not matter at all. That's not what you're saying. That's not what the study says, but people may conclude that. So I, I don't know what how to phrase this question, but like, do you have a responsibility for that? Does Dr. Budoff have a responsibility for that? How do we, how do we phrase that? Yeah, I would say that we do have a responsibility to do our best to inject nuance where we can. I myself, I I try more than I ever have to funnel that into every appearance I have that's semi long form, like this one, which is why I I take moments to try to recontextualize and try to put it out there. Like if let's say somebody were to have me on and they said, Hey, I just want to have you on and just report the findings and then celebrate after that. I just want to have a clip of you saying that I would, I would now feel uncomfortable with that because I would feel like it was too easily allowing for something bumper sticker like, right. Yeah. A lot of times I think it's helpful to, just add all of that additional context and be sure that that gets baked in. Now, to the extent that people are critical of myself and my work that I'm intentionally promoting a bumper sticker version of this, that I do think is unfair. Because if they know better, if they themselves are watching things like this, if they are reading our papers. Our papers are very careful in their language with with regard to uh, what their limitations are and so forth. Ah, that one I don't give as free of a pass for. Let's just put it that way. Well, and you might be more prone to those attacks because you don't have letters after your name, <laughs> right? You don't That's have right. an MD or a PhD after your name. So that sets you up with probably a bigger target. But it took you, an engineer, outside the scientific community to come in and, by the way, I mean, accomplish something pretty amazing for somebody without a research background. Uh, so, I mean, I guess, is that fair or unfair, too, since we're on this question of fairness? I Well, first of all, I think it's absolutely fair to assume somebody that's a credentialed professional in the domain that you're looking into at least has a head start compared to anybody else 
that you're seeing in that domain. But I always think of it from that perspective. They've got a head start. It doesn't, I'm sure you, I certainly know people who are very savvy in general, or they're very savvy because they had to learn a particular thing for whom I start to go to that person because they had a, a special motivation to specialize in that thing, even if that's not what their original career was. And that's what's fascinating about engineering, where I'm coming from, is you don't, if you look at job listings, the job, I know this because I've hired 30, 40 engineers in my lifetime. We're not putting out, uh, you need to have this degree and this degree and this degree in order for us to hire you. No, it's, do you work in Python? Yes. Have you also, do you have experience with um, HTML5? Do you have experience with uh, C Sharp? Right. And do you, and we're laying out the work that you did and the work that you did is your resume. It's usually a warning. It's usually a red flag. If we actually end up seeing somebody who's kind of touting all of their education bona fides, mm. we want the work. So in a yeah. way, I kind of feel like I'm taking the engineer's route in that. Yes, I'm, I haven't gone through all of the different classes. I've kind of come in through a side door of learning lipidology and working my way backwards doing these experiments that I've done like an engineer would do where I'm just kind of getting under the hood and then allowing that to inform everything that I then would take to great researchers um, that, to actually codify this together. Of course, Nick Norwitz, Adrian Sotomoda, uh, uh, David Ludwig, Anatole Kantush, all of these folks who I've been helping to integrate the energy model, the lean mass hypersponder phenotype, I obviously rely on them a great deal, but it's also allowed for this level of kind of cutting edge advancement in the research that I'm kind of proud of. I sort of like being in a pool of names with huge numbers of letters, and then I'm just kind of there on my own because it's almost as it's a running joke with a lot of my friends in engineering that there's sort of a, a there's sort of a little bit more of a high fiveness with them in being somebody who did accomplish a lot without having done it in the traditional routes. That's, that's, you know, the Steve jobs and, and, uh, the Zuckerbergs and all of these folks who went to college and then drop out and then change the world. Right. That's kind of the, that's the world we live in, right? That's what we're used to. So in that sense, yeah, I don't mind. My my credentials are in the papers that I've now published. My credentials are in this this study that I've been able to get together and where it'll take us and and I'm fine with that resume. I, it's working out so far. It's great perspective. So, if you were going to sum things up about what you found and what it, what the impact is. I mean, what's the elevator pitch for the for the summary? I know which is Hard for you to do because you like to explain things in detail with the caveats. But is there the the quick the quick elevator pitch, or am I just asking you to to do something that shouldn't be done? Yeah, the the elevator pitch is while limited. I do think these data are are extremely compelling and quite possibly very pivotal. I say quite possibly pivotal because you just you can't really know that until you're further along in the process. But I very early on, literally at the point where the phenotype was getting identified, the lean mass hypersponder phenotype, I dreamed then 
that if we could just study these folks, if we could just get study studies going around them, they may not only tell us a lot about risk, they may actually teach us a lot about lipid physiology. And I still have that opinion today. So do I think this is definitive? No. Do I think it's pivotal? I think so. But I, you know, only time will show. Only time will say. That's my best elevator pitch. Sorry. <laughs> That's good. That's good. For you, that was pretty good. That was pretty concise for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for all your work. And uh, I'm, I'm so excited that it, it's it's from where it started from our first discussion back in like 2018 to to now it, uh, to see these results and to see what you've accomplished is, is truly remarkable. So congratulations. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for listening to the Metabolic Mind podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please leave a rating and comment as we'd love to hear from you. And please click the subscribe button so you won't miss any of our future episodes. And you can see full video episodes on our YouTube page at Metabolic Mind. Lastly, if you know someone who may benefit from this information, please share it as our goal is to spread this information to help as many people as possible. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here next time at the Metabolic Mind podcast.